Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz trumpeter, singer, and songwriter Jennifer Hartswick. She opened up about her sophomore release, the new 2022 CD, Something in the Water. This is an album that includes songs about life, love, and music, and it inspires the listener to feel deeply. She spent her formative years on 300 acres of family farmland in her hometown of Sheffield, Vermont, where the landscape shaped her musical sensibilities. She is an original member of the Trey Honest band and has recorded or shared the stage with the likes of Herbie Hancock, Fish, Christian McBride, Tom Petty, Aaron Neville, Carlos Santana, the Rolling Stones, Dave Matthews, and countless others, and her live performances are known as spontaneous, joyful, and contagious. This is a great musician and person. Enjoy this story. I'm great, Joe. How you doing? I'm wonderful. Thanks for taking a minute out. Of course. Before we get into something in the water which could be, I guess, the tagline for the last two years on planet Earth. Talk, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about how you survived through that two-year period of, you know, limited shows and things just kind of being thrown upside down. First of all, I I enjoyed a little time off at first, which is not something I'm very used to. I'm on the road about 300 days a year. So I took the first three or four months and just did absolutely nothing but decompress before I started to freak out. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, I, just, I, I freaked out just like the rest of everybody with no job. Um, I wrote a lot of music. I practiced for the first time in a long time. Uh, I got to spend time with, with my husband, which we were both on the road, so that was nice. I sort of got to check in with myself and see how I was doing, which is not something I'm used to. So that's that's kind of a synopsis. So how do you, as a music organism and even from a business standpoint, how do you think you are reemerging stronger because of this? Well, I think I'm reemerging stronger with just like a stronger sense of self because of that break. You know, it gave me an opportunity to to really sit down and say, if money was no object, what would I do and what would I not do anymore? Because money, because nobody had money. <laughs> no one was doing things for money at that time. So it was, what do I want to be a part of? What do I want to accomplish? Um, what do I want to leave behind? That sort of gave me an opportunity when when things opened back up to, to take the things that I was really interested in. So something in the water is coming out now as things are opening up. What kind of relief is it to have new material out now that there's chances for live shows and just the world's in a different place? Oh, it's it's beautiful. I'm I'm so proud of, of the thing that we made, of the, the record that we made. I'm I'm proud of the people who were a part of it. Um it's real I feel really great about um releasing new material when there's so much rebirth happening. Um I'm kinda honored to be a, a part of this time in history, you know? Having new music and, and having people finally get back to doing what they love. So it feels really good. So something in the water, talk to me about how you artistically put this together. How how did all of this come to being? I wanted to write a new um a new album during this period of time. Um I've, I I usually write a lot with my uh musical cohort Nick Casarino who plays guitar and who produced this album. Um and so we ended up going to Vermont for a week and a half into a closed bed and breakfast that's owned by family friends of his in the middle of winter and just sort of shutting out everything and 
being in nine feet of snow and freezing temperatures and a roaring fire, and we just started writing. What what ended up happening after the week and a half, you know, we had too much music, which is how you always have to go into an album. And then a few months later, we had scheduled time to, to go see what happened in the studio um, and see how these things fleshed out. Um, and so we ended up recording, there's nine songs on the, we recorded probably 14 songs, um, and there's nine that ended up making the cut. Um, and we made the album in Nashville. I've lived in Nashville for 10 years uh, and never made an album here. I always make it somewhere else. And it felt important to to make this album in the city in which I live because I had finally spent so much time here. Um, and I wanted to do it with a local engineer and feel like um, feel like I could put my little stamp on Nashville. Uh, so we made it here in um, in May. What are you hoping the listener gets from this album? What's your ultimate hope sonically that they they fetch from it? I hope you know every everybody listens to music for different reasons, and um, everybody's moved by different things. It may be a, you know a lyric of something that they really resonate with, or it may be a sonic thing, or um, you know it's hard for me to say. I really hope each listener gets X, Y, and Z out of it. I just I hope that it resonates with people. However, they need to hear it. Um, as broad of an answer as that is, that's that's the honest answer for me. Um, I know when I go listen to music, I may be expecting to really, you know, love hearing like you know the instrumental part of it, or this is a great trumpet player that I love, and and then I uh, I'm moved by something completely different. So I, you know, I mean, ultimately, I hope I hope people are moved by it in some way. So you're, you're talking about the landscape of where you recorded the album and, you know, it was sparse, not a lot of urban things going on. But you grew up in Vermont with a large expanse around you. How did yeah. that kind of shape your psyche into who you were ultimately going to become as a musician and what your voice is? That has everything to do with, with how my life was shaped. I had the privilege of growing up um, really in the woods, and I, I really do mean that. We, my, my family has 300 acres that's been in the family for generations. Um, we, we were the only house besides my grandparents for miles. And I grew up in a big family of musicians, and, and it's really all we did. Um, you know, we, we gardened, we played music, uh, we, we wrote music, we sang, we put on, you know, productions. Um, and really, I, I, ha I had the privilege of growing up there. I also had the privilege of growing up in a time that was pre-internet. So no one was judging, no one was comparing themselves to anybody else. And I think that's, um, that's a huge reason why I am like I am. And I think it's a, unfortunately like a real disservice to kids now because kids can't be kids. They're always comparing themselves and thinking that they're supposed to have it all together because they they only see the final product online and on Instagram and everything is like a polished version when nobody wants to show the work. And I think uh, because I got to grow up in the woods where no one was paying attention, I, I got to experience those things in private and figure out who I was, uh, you know, in private before I emerged as an artist. Um, and I think that's that's sort of, you know, why I am like I am. What jazz musicians were you swayed by, recordings or maybe your first live jazz show you ever saw? I mean, I was, because of the rural nature of where I grew up, um, seeing live music was 
was a, a really special thing. Um, we would have to travel hours to go see live music of any kind, really. But I always, we always had music on in the house. We always had jazz on in the house. My first recollection of music, period, um, is an Ella Fitzgerald tape that was like a dubbed tape that someone gave my parents. I still remember the black and gold Maxell tape. And I remember distinctly asking my mom why the singer wasn't singing words. <laughs> my first uh, my first recollection of music was Ella Fitzgerald's gas singing. And she explained to me what that was, and I just kind of looked at her like she had three heads. Um, but music was always uh, a part of my life, and, and jazz especially. Um, and then, you know, when, like, the CD clubs started happening where they would send you t- 10 CDs for whatever, 14 bucks or something... <laughs> Um, I was a member of that super young and I used to pick out a bunch of CDs and then a bunch of CDs that, that I didn't know would appear at my door. Um, and so that was really helpful as a kid who grew up in the woods. But uh, I was a huge fan of, of, you know, when I got to be 13, 14, 15 years old, you know, I was a huge fan of, of Christian McBride's, um, you know, and Josh Redman and James Carter and like that whole era of, of music that was happening when I was in high school. So to be able to kind of bring everything full circle and make an album with Christian and be on his label and, and all of that kind of stuff has been just like a really uh, beautiful full circle moment for me. For me. So talk to me after Vermont. What happened next? Kind of give me a timeline to Nashville now. Oh, boy. Um, I moved to New York City when I was 18. Um, spent a couple of years there. I went to the Hart School of Music for a year. <laughs> um, and then I got picked up by Trey Anastasio to go on the road with his band um, when I was about 20. Uh, I'm still in that band for 22 years later. <laughs> and so I, I traveled around the country and the world with him for, for you know, several decades, all while making records of my own and playing with other folks and um, all of that. But I landed in Nashville about 10 years ago, and it wasn't really for musical re- reasons. My husband's from Tennessee. Um, and when I started hanging out with him, I just sort of found myself down here. And like I said, it's it, for as much as I, I pay my bills here, I live in my suitcase on the road <laughs> between a tour bus or an airplane and a hotel. And so I'd never really felt connected to Nashville before. It was just sort of where I lived. Um, but then when we had to stay home for almost two years, I got to know it and got to really like it. Um, but it's, it still feels like a very new city to me. So what is it that you like the best about being a professional musician? What do you look forward to the most? Uh, I love to travel. I think it's, uh, for me, because I've been doing it for as long as I have, it's really the relationships that you form along the way, you know, walking into a venue for the second or third time and knowing the staff, um, getting to see people that you see in the audience that you saw last time who you have that experience with. I mean, that's ultimately my job. I I get to spread joy for a living. Uh, That's not something that I ever take for granted or that's ever lost on me. Some people go to their jobs and really hate (laughs) hate their job. Um, I get to make music with my friends for people who who appreciate it. And um, I mean, I think it's it's for me, it's the greatest job I could ever have. So if you have a dream tonight and you run into your younger version, say in your 20s or before you went to New York, and you could tell your younger younger version one piece of advice based on what you've learned throughout all these years, what would you tell that version? 
Uh, I would tell them to trust your gut. <laughs> That's mm. it. It's as simple as that for me. Uh, trust your gut. So why do you love jazz? Oh, I love the. It's kind of the same reason I love music. Period. I love the. Uh, I love the communication. Um, I love the interplay. You know, uh, uh, some some jazz can be. You know, you go to see someone and it's like, oh, I'm taking a solo now and kind of not paying attention to whatever else is happening within the band. Um, and I think, you know, for me, the the most important part is the conversation that's happening within the band. And when you go see the, the greatest of the greats, you know, really is a conversation and everyone's listening and supporting. And and, and for me, that's um, that's why I love it. I love to go, you know, watch a sax player taking an amazing solo, but also at the same time, the interplay between the drummer and the piano player and the sax player, you know? Um, I just love the communication. I think it's it's what makes the world go round. So if you could see any jazz musician that's alive today, live, who would you want to see? Who's on your list? I mean, I think as far as things that blow my mind and heart every time, Herbie Hancock, it just seems like... He's been here for so long, and he's still so innovative. I, every time I see him, I just, I, it, it just like my heart explodes <laughs> and my brain, which is not always the case. <laughs> so everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live your life. Who do you think you are? I think, great question. I think of myself as... A, a vessel for joy you know at the end of the day that that feels like why i'm here i feel like i have the the privilege of of doing that in life um and so that that's how that's sort of how i look at my my life from from the time that i was born to hopefully you know a long time from now i, I look at myself as a vessel of joy great answer jennifer thank you for taking time out good luck with the album and return to the, the live stage and beyond. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and singers in Nashville, Vermont, New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jennifer for her class, cool, and time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. It's a whole lot of medicine, baby. For me to pretend I'm somebody else. Neon Jazz.